thumbs rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. Well, Bob, for, I don't know, the third or fourth week in a row, we got winter weather to contend with again as we're trying to get the gardening season going here in the first week of April, and it's just not going to happen for a while. Not for a little while. Uh, this <laughs> has been a really prolonged uh, winter. Wintry mix, I heard that in the forecast, yeah. what, for the next three, four days? Yeah, through Thursday anyway, and uh, could be worse in some spots up the shore where they're expecting uh, up to eight inches of snow. Got a winter uh, storm warning for Lake and Cook counties for tonight and uh, early tomorrow. Isn't that something? Well, for folks that are returning uh, from a little farther south, uh, <laughs> I guess the rest of the world's you know, they may have spring, but they have their share of problems farther south. Yeah. And I think, Dave, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Looks like all the projections are for hot and dry for this year, and I think we're going to be very appreciative of the fact that we're getting a little bit of moisture with this. Yeah, I guess it doesn't uh, matter if it's snow or rain at this point. At least it's moisture. It's moisture, and the real fortunate thing is we don't have any frost in the ground to speak of, and uh, it's just all soaking in. So I think uh, moisture is going to be really critical this year, and uh, we're kind of gearing up for that. Now, you know, weather predictions are weather predictions, and we're looking at general trends here. And um, all the general trends, and I follow the good folks at the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and their climate predictions, they're saying warmer and drier, and um, I hope they're wrong. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think we are going to be experiencing that. So that's kind of what we're going to we're going to look forward to uh, this year. And we say we look forward to it. I'm going to do some sessions here coming up. Where we can talk about them on uh, growing some warm season crops. What we know about tomatoes. It's kind of interesting because I've changed. Uh, I've looked at so many different varieties of tomatoes. You know that, Dave. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've mentioned that there are 10,000 of them out there, literally 10,000-plus varieties, and they're more gaining acceptance every year. We have an all American, two All-American selections that are actually tomatoes this year. And uh, those varieties, uh, sadly, are kind of hard to get right now. Uh, one called Pink Delicious, which is a cross between some of the heirlooms. You know, the heirlooms varieties had all the, all the great flavor and uh, just some unusual shapes that went along with them. But really, I think uh, the juiciness and the flavor is what we really associate with some of the classic heirloom varieties, the brandy wines of the world and the uh, pink, uh, the purple uh, Cherokees and so forth. Really great, flavorful. And, you know, we started doing some hybridization. The downside of the heirlooms, first, they're very late for us. And then they're all on indeterminate vines. They want to grow uh, to the moon if they had the chance. A little hard to manage. And uh, the biggest, another real problem with heirlooms is they're very susceptible to disease. Now, in a hot, dry year, that may not be such a, a difficult problem, but we get these periods of moist conditions, foggy conditions, and a lot of the fungal diseases take over. So there are some real challenges that go along with heirlooms. Uh, they, they certainly don't stand up very long. You really have to consume them within a day or two or three after you pick them. They have very thin skins. All those things add to the flavor. But um, those are some characteristics that they've tried to breed out as they got rid of some of those characteristics and they incorporated what we call a disease package. And we're we're looking uh, still to the plant breeders, and there are a lot of tomato breeders in this country. North Carolina seems to be a center for a lot of that. A lot of the materials that I'm looking at right now come out of that breeding program. 
and um, they're looking for disease resistance, a good disease package. Uh, they'd like to get away from early blight, late blight, the septoria leaf spot, some of these foliar diseases. But in the process, we tend to lose a little bit of the other really nice characteristics about tomatoes, and uh, this would be some of these unique flavors. Well, one of these new introductions, Pink Delicious, they're, they're again going back into the heirloom genome, and they're trying to bring flavor back into a, you know, to a tomato that has some of these other more desirable characteristics. So it's the number one garden crop, Dave, and I, I know that uh, folks in this area are going to be uh, growing a lot of them this year. Uh, just getting close to the time, if you want to start some of your own from seed, uh, you can think about that. I usually don't like to get started too early because you got to be able to handle that crop and you don't want to set them out too early. We still, even though we're warming, Dave, uh, we've had frosts on June 10th, June yeah. 11th, June 12th, just in the last year or two here. And we've had, uh, I remember last year, a very, very sharp freeze the end of May. So we have to be a little careful about pushing the season. And again, this is kind of an example. We still got winter, we still got wintry mix. But with that moisture, I think we'll take every drop of moisture we can get down in the soil uh, right now at this time, Dave. All right. You said there's 10,000 different tomato varieties, and some of them taste different. And to me, I guess I'm not a tomato connoisseur, but to me, they all taste like tomatoes. <laughs> you know, you're right. It's, it is kind of interesting. Uh, I've tried a lot of them, and there's, there is a difference in flavors. Wow. Uh, uh, quite significant. There's differences in the acidity. There's differences in the uh, certainly in the sugar content. Uh, one that's become kind of a favorite. Now this is one of the, uh, the cherry ter- tomatoes. Happens to have a tangerine appearance, but uh, sugar gold and uh, sun sugar. Those are both uh, varieties that uh, are smaller cherry tangerine colored uh, tomatoes. Very very sweet. Now they don't stand up very long either. They tend to crack. There's some downsides to them. And a little hard to manage because they they run on indeterminate vines which want to grow all over the place on you. So that's one of the characteristics of that type of tomato where we're going to do a little bit of pruning to try to keep some of that rank growth under control. But uh, sensational sugars, people always ask for that, and uh, there is a there definitely is a difference. Uh, they're all great. Anytime you got a fresh vine ripened tomato. <laughs> Uh, no comparison to what's uh, available today in the grocery stores at this time of year. But nonetheless, uh, uh, there are some differences, Dave. We're going to have to let you try some this year. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, 10,000 different varieties. I could probably uh, handle one or two anyway. <laughs> you know what's funny? I uh, We found a couple based on flavor. You know, I, I like to try all, a lot of these. and. Mm-hmm. We are going to be putting together a top 10 list uh, for this year, and I'm going to uh, release that actually at our first session here in Mount, it's going to be in Mount Iron a week from tomorrow at the community center there. We're going to talk about uh, the climate predictions we've got going forward, and we'll share this with you during what we call meteorological summer. This is June, July, and August when most of the growing really occurs. Uh, once again, NOAA is staying to their prediction. We're going to be slightly warmer than normal slightly drier than normal for that period. Now, not too dissimilar to what we had last year, and people can remember, was great for warm season crops if you had the moisture. So we're going to look at some irrigation techniques and ways to hold moisture in the soil. We're going to prepare for that, and oftentimes we'll get uh, two years in a row with the similar types of characteristics. You know, I pulled up those statistics about um, what we had last year, and 
Again, we had warmer temperatures, warmer day temperatures by about three degrees, warmer night temperatures by about two and a half degrees, and overall during the growing season, the average uh, temperature was warmer by about three degrees, but still our average temperature was just about 68 degrees. It's still considerably cooler here. We still have a cool season climate compared to what the averages would be other places, but the real definitive characteristic that was kind of shocking last year is during the growing season uh, we were down about five inches of precipitation from about 12 to about six almost uh, six and a half so we really uh, were very very dry until the fall rains came we did get some relief in the fall but uh, when we really needed it we really would like ideal conditions when those plants have lots of daylight so anywhere from about june 15th through the end of july this is when we really want to have ideal growing conditions we kind of gear around that time because that's when sunlight's available and that's when the plant is pushing out lots of green growth and from that green growth we get uh, all these sugars that are produced so but uh, during uh, during that period we were very very dry last year and hopefully uh, that that part of it won't repeat but once again uh, the predictions are for another dry year so we're going to prepare for that and and hope all the predictions are wrong we get a little more moisture uh, this year which would help a great deal. Uh, tell us a little bit about that mountain iron event. How do we uh, do we need to sign up for that, or how, how, where, where do we go? Yeah, this year because we're coming back together in mm-hmm. person, we're going to uh, going to try to space people, so we're going to have okay. to limit the limit the number of people that enroll. But uh, the easiest thing to do, uh, St. Louis County Extension, it's the Virginia office two one eight seven four nine seventy one twenty. You can give them a call. Uh, certainly get on their mailing list and there's also a website uh, opportunity to to register but I would definitely pre-register for that one uh, just google St. Louis County Extension Mount Iron and you'll see gardening events and I'm um, pretty excited about that I've got two colleagues that are working with me on it and a commercial greenhouse grower we did uh, pepper research last year Dave mm-hmm. and ripened a lot of peppers and we've got varieties for you we've got techniques anytime you do some actual bona fide research uh it doesn't always turn out like you anticipated, but we took a lot of numbers and looked, and I think we've got a, a little better handle on how we can ripen some of these peppers. i give you some nice red, yellows, orange, purple peppers, so we're going to share that uh, those techniques and that data. going to look at tomatoes specifically, and uh, then we're going to want to really orient toward how we're going to manage uh, these warmer growing conditions. All right, first the, big gardening event of the season, so I want to make sure to get registered for that one. That'll be the first one for us up <laughs> in the range. We'll be back down at Duluth on the 23rd of April, but uh, that one should be a good one. Always get good attendance. And uh, But I would get in there. We're going to have to the space people, probably cut uh, enrollment to about 50 people or so okay. on that one. Very good. Hey, we'll take a break and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on KDAO. And we're back more of the morning uh, show here with Bob Olin. Good to have you along, Bob. And uh, over the past weekend, you had the Home and Garden Show down at the deck. Lots going on there as well. And I noticed one of the uh, presenters there had the, uh, I guess they call it, what, hay bale gardening? Have you heard of that? Oh, we actually did several sessions on that here, actually. <laughs> and I know the individual you're talking about yeah. he's kind of made a name for himself running around and uh, uh, doing uh, his his thing. We've done it. Uh, a lot of people have tried it. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the concept is you're going to use hay bales, and you know that's basically fiber and a lot right. of carbon. 
So you've got to condition those bales, and that's going to take some uh, good uh, fertility in the bale prior to planting. So you've got to get some of that to break down. You've got to get a lot of a balanced fertilizer, probably a 10-10-10 with water in there prior to planting your plants. So then you put your plants in there. And You know where I really think that, and I don't mean to discourage anyone from trying it, I've tried it, a lot of folks have, and uh, I think it might work best for people that don't have any mineral soil to work with. In other words, you got an asphalt drive, and that's your open space where you've got full <laughs> sun where you want to grow your tomatoes, and how on earth am I going to do that? So I think stacking up a couple of hay bales there, and, and you've got to get them stacked, and you've got to get a support system. And, and so there are some, it's like a lot of things, it's, uh, it is unique, it, it will work for you, but uh, from my perspective, if you've got some either containers available or if you've got uh, garden space with good sun, uh, that would still be my preference. But nonetheless, um, it's fun, you can give it a try, and properly manage it will work. Now, if you don't condition those bales, and you just try to put this in uh, uh, that straw, or if you don't uh, manage your water, because that can that can dry out very quickly, and yeah. it's elevated, it's above the ground, there's not much of a reservoir there, so water management's going to be extremely important there. So there are some little caveats that go along with that system. There's no magic system, but it certainly <laughs> has a, a unique aspect to it, and it can work particularly if... Uh, if you don't have good garden space available. Yeah, a lot of folks also try what the upside-down hanger-type deals. Well, yeah, you can do that with tomatoes, and that mm-hmm. became kind of uh, kind of fun with some of the <laughs> indeterminate hanging tomatoes and so forth. So, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, and there are different growing systems of all types out right. there, and there's some um, water-feeding systems, and I think some of those might be important in a year like this. And, you know, just about everybody can uh, can find something that works in a limited amount of space. You're in an apartment, you got maybe a right. little balcony space with some sun, and I think some of these other uh, container growing techniques can be uh, useful for you as well. Uh, gardening, Dave, is the number one hobby in the country, mm-hmm. and it, it depends on who you what what kind of survey you follow. I found one survey where they said eating is is the number one hobby. That may be. <laughs> <laughs> we all like to eat, but I think they were referring perhaps to eating out there. But certainly for what we would uh, consider hobbies, uh, it is the number one, particularly in the Midwest, where we come from an, an agrarian and agricultural history and an important part of our economy, feeding the world and so forth here. So we've got that in our DNA, and it certainly is a great big hobby here in the Northland. Yeah. Even better to grow what you eat, I guess. Well, you know, we're talking food prices. That's mm-hmm. another factor this year, which I think is going to drive demand. Uh, I cannot see food coming down. Um, It was kind of interesting, one of our sessions, and actually we're going to do a little something at Mount Iron, too. Mm We're going to give everybody a sunflower seed pack. That's the National Ah. Flower of Ukraine, so we're going to get some uh, great sunflowers repacked, the giant uh, mammoths, and uh, but it's interesting, 13% of the world's calories went away with the war over there in Ukraine. So that wow. puts pressure on grain supplies everywhere. And grain, of course, goes into not just direct human consumption, but in all of the meat animals we have out there. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a little tight. I cannot uh, foresee uh, food prices coming down in the, in the near term. Markets eventually regulate. Hopefully we can get that resolved and get uh, some crops planted. Ukraine is the bed basket of, uh, of Europe. I heard a rep from uh, Agco, uh, people are familiar with John Deere, but Bertou in line is, is a company by the name of Agco that makes a lot of agricultural equipment. 
both here in the United States and also in Europe, and uh, they are working in the western part of Ukraine trying to get some of that crop in. So if we think we have difficulty with dry conditions, uh, they have a whole other set of circumstances, but they are feverishly coming into planting time and trying to get some kind of a crop in there, both for their own use and and the rest of Europe's uh, use as well. So we'll see, but we're fortunate here we don't have those situations to deal with. But I think a lot of people may be looking at the economics of vegetable gardening uh, this year with food prices higher than they have been in the past. For sure. All right, Bob, let's uh, head to the phone, see what we got here on the uh, phone this morning. Good morning. Who's this? This is Brian from Superior. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. Hi. Hi. I what just wanted to, uh, well, I got two things. I, I just wanted to thank you for doing the show. I really enjoy the show, and uh, it's, uh, I'm sure everybody does. It's very honorable, honorable of you to take time out of your life to do the show. So uh, thank you very much for the show. And then That's I have a, very, a question very, for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, what are your thoughts on biochar, and is it worth the effort to make biochar to add to your garden? Boy, that became real popular for a while. And, you know, the charred carbon, there is a component to it that, uh, in my mind, uh, makes some sense. But you point out the fact that, uh, you know, it it can be expensive or it can be time-consuming to try to char some of the wood yourself. And to be honest with you, from my perspective, I think there are better ways you can spend your time and and your money than, than trying to infuse the soil with biochar. I would go back and I would like to take a look at... uh, you know, uh, a good compost system and, and uh, trying to increase organic levels that way. And of course, the char is, you know, it provides a component there. It's going to open your soil up, but it is it is largely carbon. The nice thing, if we go back into some of our organic materials and a good quality compost, uh, we've got a lot of bioactivity. We're going to accomplish some of the same things. We're going to open the soil up uh, and um, texture is important as well as the chemistry so the nice thing about uh, a compost product if you have a heavy clay it opens up your soil Uh, if you've got a real light sandy soil it helps retain moisture but the big thing about a compost is we can encourage a lot of bioactivity Uh, there's been a lot of discussion now about uh, cover crops working in green manure crops trying to increase uh, the organic component in our soils and from my own personal experience, it's an area that I really focus on. I like to bring the organics up and have had very good results with it as well. So my opinion is, yes, there's a component that goes along with it, but I think for your time, money, and effort, you're better off focusing on other organics, uh, specifically uh, uh, compost. But uh, uh, I, I want to go back to your original comments. I, I thank you very much for your uh your interest in the programming and yeah we do this uh just to help folks out a little bit and uh, i'm really glad that you appreciate that nice comments that you you had there thank you yeah thanks again all right thanks a lot for the call appreciate it biochar that's the first i've ever heard of that that's it yeah, maybe we'll do a little a uh, little it was very uh almost fashionable a while ago mm-hmm. we we begin to see things come and go and they uh <laughs> they gain kind of a, a mysticism one thing, and I'll mention it going back to what we're going to do at, uh, at Mount Royal, my colleague and I, we're going to take a look at some of the real basics of growing. We're going to go back in our first session because we're talking about how are we going to adjust to this changing climate. And one way we adjust is with just 
um, optimizing what we do know about how plants grow and how we can provide everything uh, they really need, a, a quick look at what we can do with for pH, for nutrients, for yeah. organic uh, components, for uh, managing that green plant in a manner that uh, it can respond as well as possible to this changing environment. But uh, certainly there are components that come in from time to time, biochar being one of them. Uh, for a while, people were uh, kind of excited about it, but uh, from my perspective, uh, as I mentioned, I think there are better ways we know we can get to right. performance. What I like about organics in the soil is uh, we get more activity, and uh, soils are very complex. Uh, we're, we're taking nutrients, we're breaking them down into forms that the plant can kind of utilize, and this is all done by microbial activity, principally bacteria of a, a number of different types, but also fungi working in there. So we get this activity that comes from a viable organic source like uh, like active composting. Yeah, when I heard biochar, the first thing I thought of was like a forest fire helping to renew maybe a forest area, but might be a whole different thing. Well, it, it, the concept is similar, okay. uh, but uh, I, I think that the the big thing when we've got burn-off areas, mm. um, all of that ash really started to contribute uh, potassium in particular ah. into, our, into our areas, and uh, in some cases dropping the pH, opening of forested areas up. People will see a lot of blueberries and so forth that <laughs> will come in. A part of that is, that, yes, we're getting some nutrient from the ash, but we're also opening things up to more sunlight, and uh, it's sunlight that really drives the plant. So there are reasons why a burnt charred area, mm -hmm. rather than the char itself, uh, will come back and will rejuvenate. And that's, of course, nature's way, although uh, hot and dry, we don't need too many of those for as far no. as we, that was another <laughs> aspect we remember from last year. There are probably better ways to, to get uh, some good growth to occur there. All right, got another phone call. Bob, hi, who's this? Uh, Marilyn from Saginaw. All right, more Hi, Bob. Morning, I'd like Marilyn. to ask you about Af African violets. Sure. I have two two African violets, and they're, they're each in one of those, you know, self-watering pots. Yes. But a few weeks ago back, the one started getting all these mushy stems. So I looked on the Internet, and it said I'm watering too much. I thought if they were in those self-watering pots, they watered themselves. And I didn't. <laughs> I was keeping water right. in the lower part of the pot, but now I let it dry out, and and you know the mushy ones have gone now. And there's a couple that have turned brown that are dying off, probably be from the other extreme, letting it dry out. But it is blooming. Um, so Great. do I only water put water in those pots once in a while? Well, <laughs> you know. African violets are one of the uh, one of the house plants that uh, can tolerate its roots in in water like that. You can take cuttings. Perhaps you've tried it yourself and just use uh, just straight water, and they will in fact tolerate that. And hence the self watering uh, containers. But anytime you've got all of that moisture and you don't have a lot of oxygen, we are vulnerable to root rot disease. So that's I'm sure what's happened here. I'm still um, I would say. You know, that's the system. The whole idea is I don't have to water. They self-water, but there's going to be a portion of those roots is always going to be sitting wet and sitting in the water, so you're always going to run that risk of some uh, waterborne or soil-borne disease there. I'm more of an advocate of getting a good, high-quality potting soil and African violet soil at this kind of dialed in specifically and then managing the water yourself. A little more effort, but uh, once you're in a soil like that, you get better drainage and you minimize this 
possibility of root rot that occurs with all that moisture. So just water them from the top and just let it drip down into the, the excess drip out and whatever then? You could, you could water from the bottom if you like as well. Uh, so you could, you know, with a, a cup underneath there, they do bottom feed like that. So you could, uh, you know, if you had that uh, a cupped saucer at the bottom with good drainage holes, uh, you could keep that filled. But then we've got the roots actually growing in the soil rather than growing okay. in this in this water medium. So that okay. the self watering, we we would constantly got them in a wet wet condition. But bottom watering or watering from the top, and you're probably aware of this. The the difficulty with African violets is you get water droplets on that uh, kind of furry leaf surface and any yeah. sunlight, and they spot up for you pretty badly. So any watering from the top, we have to be very careful not to get any water on the leaves. Hence, yeah. I think, watering from the bottom, but that's a little different concept than something where we're constantly in the water and uh, we've got a self-watering type of mechanism. Yeah. Should I, once it quits blooming, should I repot it in new soil? But you know, I didn't want I, a monkey I, I, with it while it's blooming now. Yeah, just enjoy them for now. I, I think that's probably okay. good advice. you got plenty, you know, we're expanding day length. It is the right time to really uh, transplant houseplants of all types because we've got uh, additional daylight every day, and you're a violet grower, so, you know, we don't want that real intense light, but we want a nice bright light, eastern windows, and or, or maybe a little bit of a sheer curtain in front of a, a west window or a south window just so we get bright light but not hot light. And uh, let them finish blooming. I think that's a good uh, a good strategy, and there still should be plenty of time to get them transplanted, and they should take off nicely for you. And when you're pulling them out, you know you can see any of that uh, root material that's glommed together, that's uh, that's obviously rotting. You want to trim that off. And violets are pretty good that way. You can uh, you can do some root pruning and clean back to that uh, creamy white tissue and then transplant um, those at that time. Sometimes if you have to take a lot of it off, you might try uh, just pulling a poly bag over the top, not in direct sunlight. Again, we've got to be very careful because they can heat. But uh, when you, particularly if you've removed some of the root tissue, it's going to take a while for that root tissue to regenerate, and the plant is losing moisture through those leaves. So if you can increase the relative humidity around the upper portion of the plant until we get some root regrowth there, that will help. You can do that by... Finding an area in the house where there's more relative humidity, or you can pull a clear poly over the top, uh, which will increase relative humidity, but you have to be extremely careful that you're not in direct sunlight, otherwise that'll superheat on you. But both of those techniques, a little more relative humidity on the leaves until we get that uh, root system regenerated. Okay? Okay. Mine are in a north window, but they are right next to a north window, but they seem to have been there, and they seem to like the light there, so... Yeah, I think a north window, you you don't run that risk of the real intense uh, uh, light. It's a big so window, a so they option. have a lot of, yeah, they have a lot of light, so it's a, it's a big window. So, okay, that's thank great. you very much. Hey, thanks thank for the call. Interesting yeah. question. Mm-hmm. African violets. Uh, 9.45, let's take another break. Bob, right back. Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. All right, Bob, we do have another phone caller. Hi, who is this? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, just barely. Who's this? <laughs> this is Jan from Carlton. Okay. And I wanted to ask, I have a strip of land out right in front of my house. Um, it faces east-southeast. It's about 20 inches wide and, I don't know, 40 feet long. And I wanted to plant, I was thinking of hydrangeas and rhododendron. 
since it won't get, you know, afternoon sun. And I was wondering if blacktop right in front of that's going to be an issue or if it'll just grow right under and if I'll be okay there. It gets a lot of early morning sun, and so it'll get sun up till about noon probably. Okay. Boy, that's a good question. Uh, if You know, hydrangeas are have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, we've got uh, some of our basic standbys, the snowball bush and the uh, uh, some of the other hydrangeas that have been with us for a long time. They're good and durable. Um, they are vulnerable to deer. Do you have deer pressure there? Um, just... Yeah. I don't know that they'll come right to the front of the house. We're kind of close to the street. Okay. I think uh, that is one... Good option. Uh, you're being close to the street. Street like that will oftentimes uh, uh, discourage them. Obviously, um, I would say uh, you mentioned hydrangeas and rhododendrons. Were you considering or azaleas? Um, I could. I have one azalea so far, but I could. I just okay. like to leave the stay on the rhododendron. That's all. Yeah, rhododendrons, the PGMs. I'm assuming you're growing. Uh, we have to be careful with rhododendron selection. And the other thing about roadies is you, you've got to get that soil acidified. So uh, you might, uh, and I'm, I, I think they make a you know, it's real attractive early spring bloom, the PJM rhododendrons in particular, but you're going to have to drop your pH when you plant them. Most of our pHs, and down there you're probably slightly acidic into the, the pH of about 6, 6, 5, but you got to get down to about 4.5. So you want to plant that with acids, vagum, peat moss when you put uh, those in the ground maybe some sulfur just elemental sulfur working as well and then uh, in the future you're going to be fertilizing with some kind of a, uh, a sulfur-based fertilizer or fertility to keep that ph down we tend to over time revert back to our native ph which is going to be too high uh, for really uh, good quality rhododendron growth uh, i think again the azaleas and roadies that um, there can be deer pressure there but if that isn't an issue, I think both might be pretty good choices, actually. But your strip is only 20, uh, 20 inches wide, correct? Right. And uh, there I think um, some of the larger azaleas might have some problems with that. So I think staying to like a PGAM uh, rhododendron would be a good choice. You know, I think uh, there are so many real attractive hydrangeas you might want to you might want to try some of the real unique uh, varieties, Twist and Shout, Strawberry Cream. Uh, there are any number of them that limelight uh, that come to mind that are very, very attractive. But you also might just start with uh, uh, some of our old-fashioned hydrangeas as well. They're readily available, not too expensive, not quite as interesting in terms of the bloom. But sometimes trialing an area... Uh, is going to be your be your best bet, and uh, I think either either option certainly for flowering uh, material uh, would be would be good options for you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. the The, the hydrangeas will require you know a little bit of maintenance, uh, not bad, but uh, you want to familiarize yourself with both those that are are going to be uh, producing on new wood and old wood. Uh, some of our, the snowball bush and so forth, uh, hydrangea macrophylla, those particular plants uh, you'll be pruning down either in the uh, late fall when, when all the bloom is done or in the very early spring if you want to leave some of the material up for winter interest. They come down all the, other, all the way. Other varieties, uh, we have to be a little careful. They're going to they're gonna 
bloom on old wood so you can prune those up in the spring. There's a little maintenance, but it's not too difficult. And once you familiarize yourself with uh, with the type of hydrangea you have, they're really kind of fun to work with, and they're, they tend to be beautiful plants. And there you wouldn't have to acidify the soil in that case. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. That brings up a neat uh, topic, too. Acidifying the soil, is that going to ruin? Can you plant one next to the other, one that doesn't need uh, acid soil? Well, and not not really and get the same kind of success. It's pretty interesting. So when we take a look at, uh, and I will often suggest to people, and I'm going to do one particular session, uh, this is going to be down in Duluth, and the different beds in the landscape and you might want to dedicate one bed and acidify one uh-huh. of your flowering beds and this would be rhododendrons uh azaleas and blueberries so those are going to be the the big crops that really require acid soils and and very acidic as i mentioned we're going to be right down there with a very acidic ph down about 4.5 and um other plants will grow there but certainly won't mm-hmm. flourish there so i think uh we uh, kind of suggest that people dedicate a bed and acidify that bed and then make sure you've got a little bit of uh, ammonium sulfate. I mentioned that for spring fertilizing, we have to constantly work at keep, keeping that pH down because uh, soils tend to revert back to the mean. They tend to come back to the native soil pH, and our native pHs are going to be, most folks in this area are going to be too high to really do a nice job growing either blueberries or the uh, rhododendron family. And to determine uh, what your pH is, how do you go about that? Boy, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think I'm going to do a little segment on soil testing at our sessions. Uh, We really want to soil test. That's the only way. You you can't just look at a soil and determine what the pH is. Uh, That's the one component, I think, if you have a good pH meter. Now, a good pH meter runs about $100, so they're not these real cheapies that you're going to buy in the store. But you can take your own... Uh, pH if you have a good meter, and that'll that'll help you determine. Otherwise, it's part of a soil test uh, uh, components that come from both the Soil Test University of Minnesota, University of Wisconsin. Take your pick. Both have good certified labs, and uh, they'll give you a pH as well as all your other uh, nutrient and organic levels that you uh, that you require or ask for, Dave. Good uh, question. Yeah, so, you'd basically send it to them. Then do they send you an envelope for it, or any kind of envelope will do? Or how does that work? Well, it's a good question. You know, all those, uh, both uh, University of Wisconsin and University of Minnesota have good websites, uh, Soil Testing Lab, and uh, they'll give you instructions. There was a time when they would send the bags out. Now they're just sending, uh, we're just using uh, poly bags, uh, little Uh, baggies, and Ziploc bags, that type of thing, uh, letting it dry out a bit. They'll tell you how to sample it, and all the instructions are there, as well as their current fees. I better look to make sure... (laughs) <laughs> Those fees haven't gone up. I uh, I pay for that. I do. I'm a big believer in soil testing, and I want to know. I want one good uh, soil test at least in an area from a certified lab, and both University of Minnesota, and University of Wisconsin, that's got good uh, certified labs where the results will stand up in court if if need be. So they do a nice job for us, and the cost is about seventeen dollars. Money well spent uh, to know exactly where your starting point is with your with your native garden soil. Yeah, I'm guessing this would be the time to do that, too, before you start planting. Yeah, we might want to wait just a little bit, of course, till we get rid of this wintry mix and let <laughs> things dry down. Uh, we like to kind of stay off the garden plots. We don't want a lot of compaction. We can, particularly in our heavy soils, we can get a lot of compaction that the roots have to overcome when we get into the growing season. So we'll stay off them for a while, let things dry out a little bit, and then uh, and then get a soil test in uh, as soon as possible. 
and they're busy this time of year, but within about uh, 10 days you'll get the results back, or you can request an electronic uh, email on it to get the results a little faster. So there's enough time. We like to do that in the fall, if at all possible, but even I did get uh, some wide out of the fall, so I'll be pulling a few soil samples this spring as well. All right. Now, is it too early to get those tomatoes started indoors yet? Just a little bit. Uh, you're going to have to manage that and manage that growth. So I'm I'm targeting about the middle of April, about April fifteenth or so. All right. Hey, we got one uh, other quick call here. Hopefully, hi. Who's this? Dan Baudry. Hi, Dan. Go ahead. Hi, Dan. Yeah. Thanks, Bob, uh, for all you do, and uh, both of you, for that matter. A um, couple quick questions. I'm looking at trying to throw in some blackberries, and I see there's thornless and unthornless, and I'm north of Duluth, so definitely probably borderline three, almost two, I guess, uh, below Hibbing. And then okay. one other question. I've got, uh, I'd like to try to start some oak ash just for berry trees in, in the woods and stuff. And I collected a bunch of berry heads uh, this spring that were hanging on the tree. And I'm wondering, would those be viable if planted? Uh, you know what you want to do with those? Are they, have you dried them out? Have you kept them inside at this point? Yeah, they're pretty much dry now. Okay, let's do this. They're going to they're going to require a uh you're going to have to break the cold dormancy, so you're going to going to take that seed, you can peel off a little bit of the pulp, get down to the seed, don't uh, uh do any damage to the seed, but get rid of the pulp. Uh let's get it layered in uh cold sand uh, today or tomorrow as soon as possible or damp sand, I should say, just take a cake cake pan, a layer an inch or so of uh sand, uh layer in your seed, uh, inch or so above that and uh, keep it moist. Uh you don't want them sitting in water and then get that in the fridge for about 60 days. So we got to break the dormancy on it, and then you could take those out. I probably would, uh, I'd probably start them in a seed plant with a seeding mix, so you can buy a seed uh, seed mix and and uh, let them emerge. Uh, plant a lot of seed because we're going to have, there's always some viability issues. We get a smaller percentage, of course, that germinates. And then uh, you might even want to transplant those into a larger container and then ultimately you can set them, set the seedlings outside. But you're going to have to go through some kind of a cold. you got to get rid of the winter dormancy there, the cold dormancy. So you do that by uh, okay. by getting okay. them in the fridge and damp sand. The, seed, the, the seeds have hung on the tree for the winter. Oh, they were on the oh. winter for the winter. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I picked them. They uh, might be okay. Uh, you know what usually works best is when they when they fall to the ground or a bird picks those up and then excretes it and they get down in the ground. Um, we probably, you know, it's a combination of temperature and moisture that breaks that dormancy. So they're, you know, you want to give them a try. I would just go ahead and give them a try, but I'd also try this cold stratification process that I talked about, layering in some damp sand, and uh, try to okay. break that dormancy that way as well. I'd, I'd probably do a little some, bit I'll of both. both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll try some of both. And then yeah. as far as blackberries, do you have a recommendation as far as what uh Yeah, boy, that's, that the was a challenge way. because uh, I would think as far north as you are, it's going to be hardiness, and it's going to be the biggest issue. So my when you mentioned that initially, because we can grow blackberries. We have some that are native uh, out in the wooded areas and so forth, but they really require protection from the colder temperatures. Now, maybe this year might have been a good year because we had that snow early uh, for protection, but I would the most critical thing that you've got is a south site protected from the wind. So if you've got any area maybe where there's good sun and you've got the house in between, a south side with an exposure, uh, the most critical thing is going to be trying to find varieties that are labeled as hardy, 
but even those aren't real hardy for us. But yeah. finding a site that's protected. All right, Bob, we got to say goodbye for today, but uh, continue the discussion next Tuesday. Okay, thank you very much for you the bet. call. We appreciate it.